Welcome to The Dad Presents. Make sure you're following the show wherever you're listening. And wherever you are out in the world, spread that love and liberty. Let's go. Welcome to The Dad Presents. You guys, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa and all the other brand new made up holidays that we make up for the sake of equality and inclusion and everything else that we love and care about here at The Dad Presents. Man, we got a great holiday show for you today. You don't want to miss out on this one. We got the great James Lindsay. James Lindsay, destroyer of all things woke. He is amazing. You got to hear this guy. You got to share this one with your, your, your friends and your white liberal auntie, Aunt Chelsea. You know, the, the, the aunt who believes that white people are all literally Hitler, even though she's white. Aunt Chelsea needs to hear from James Lindsay. So please share it with her because this show is not going to appear on her FBI controlled Facebook timeline. Now, guys, before we get into the show, before we get into it today with James, I got to tell you a little bit about the utter disrespect of dads and how that needs to end in our society. I told you about the Christmas light situation a couple weeks ago. Well, this week, dad got shat on again. And I'm getting tired of it. I'm in the jacuzzi a couple nights ago. And you guys know when I'm in the jacuzzi, I'm free balling it. I'm letting loose because that's my jacuzzi I pay for with my hard-earned money. And I like to let it flow. Yes, it's in my, my yard where all my neighbors can see. Don't care. My property. I'm an individualist. I'm doing it that way. Anyway, my firstborn, he comes outside and he asks me a question about something he needs. Of course, he needs something. They always need something. Dad can't relax for 15 minutes in the jacuzzi because he needs something. He shouts at me. I answer. He goes back inside through the screen door. 15, 20, 30 minutes later, I get out. Get out of the jacuzzi. I walk to the screen door. You know, my manhood just flapping in the wind. I get to the screen door. I'm going to discreetly go in before anybody drives by and sees me. Guess what? He's locked me out. The door is locked. I'm locked out of my house. So I'm standing there at the door, banging on the door, banging on the glass door, screaming his name. Nothing. Nobody answers. So I call his phone. Nothing. So I call my bride. Nothing. So I'm just standing there naked, wet, starting to get cold, yelling. The whole neighborhood now knows that I'm trying to get inside. They're all hearing me yell. So now I walk around to the front door because I got to get in the house. This is starting to get a bit hairy. Naked. Walk around. I ring the doorbell. Nothing. Nobody lets me in. So I start banging on the door and calling their names again. Nothing, dudes. Nothing. Just let me hang there. So I open the mail chute and I, I bend over. And I stick my head in and start yelling their names. Nothing. Car drives by while I'm bent over with my head in the mail chute naked. And they honk their horn because what else are they going to do? What else are they going to do if you're driving down the street and you see a naked man bent over with his head in the mailbox? Right? So finally, I go around back, find an open window, crawl in my house naked like some kind of drunk, wasted criminal who just gambled away every dollar he had. And, and lost his clothes, everything in an illegal card game and had to walk home naked and broke into some stranger's house to get some clothes. Break in through the window by myself. Well, so wh well, what's everybody doing inside my house after they lock me out? Well, my firstborn 
13 years old now, was taking another one of his classic 13-year-old boy 35-minute showers. Guys, I have spent, I spent approximately, I'm going to say 25, no, 35% of my money now goes into buying conditioner because I got a teenage son at home and he takes 35-minute showers. Dude gets clean. I got the cleanest 13-year-old in the business. And the bride, well, she was watching a good movie to unwind after a little argument with her sister. And she was about four glasses of wine deep and her movie was loud. And she just didn't hear. Dads get no respect. I'm working hard, I'm making the money, paying the bills, buying the Christmas presents. I'm dressing up as Santa. I'm hiding uh, Freddles, the friendly elf every night. How about a little respect? How about you let me have my 15 minutes in the jacuzzi without locking me out of the house? Is that too much for a dad to ask? You know, I put a roof over your head. I feed you. I spoil the shits out of you. How about some respect? You know, Congress just passed a massive new spending bill that gives away money all over the place. $1.7 trillion of your money they spent, half of it we don't even have, so they're just going to print that up at the Federal Reserve, put us another trillion into debt. Everybody's getting handouts. How about a handout for the dad? How about just buy me a a second home so when the family's being annoying, I can go go disappear in that second home for five, 10 minutes. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't need to be fancy. I don't need much, just a, a bed, a window to look out of, and running water. I don't even need running water. Just give me a bed and a window that's alone. That's it. That's all I need. Come on, bitch McConnell. Come on, bitch McConnell. I've paid a lot of taxes. I paid a metric shit ton of taxes in the last four years since selling my business. Pony up, bitch. I mean, Mitch. You can do that for me. Anyway, we're that that bill, you know, look, man, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the bill that Congress just passed, but it's. trillion funds government for the next next year. Rand Paul made a big stink about it, as he should. The bill was like 5,000 pages. Nobody read it. They had it in their hands for like two days. It's crazy. And if you haven't realized it yet, I don't know when you will. But at this point, the United States government is, honest to God, nothing more than the world's biggest criminal enterprise of all time. That's what it is. The United States government exists to steal money from the American economy and the world economy to funnel it to the oligarchs who are pulling their strings. That's, that's all the American government is, a bunch of bitches for the rich oligarchs who control them. And they're stealing from us and giving to them. I've been saying that since the Iraq war. Uh, people at that time said I was being anti-American for saying so. But as we're going to discuss with James today, a lot more people are waking up to this reality and ready to do something about it. And that's awesome. I'm of the opinion that we cannot fix this problem through voting. Uh, You don't defeat the mob. You don't defeat the mafia by getting rid of the mob boss and replacing him with a new mob boss. You get rid of the mob by abolishing the mob and locking them all up. And that's what we need to do with this federal government. It's time to abolish it. Anyway, let's get into the show with James. 
Okay, guys, today we are privileged to talk to a warrior. And I don't mean a social justice warrior, but a warrior of all evil things, Mr. James Lindsay. He's an author. He recently published The Marxification of Education. He's also the author of the Grievance Studies Papers with Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose, whom have been on our show as well. Uh, that was a revealing look into the scientific journal community and the education system and how woke ide ideology has taken them over. He's a leading expert in the dangers of critical race theory in our schools. That's why we want to talk to him. And he's been bravely fighting in public against very powerful people. And we all know that can be very costly and dangerous. So, James, you're 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 a brave guy. You're you're an important guy in the fight and what's going on. You're an important guy to parents who are dealing with this stuff every day. Thank you for coming back on the show. How's your holiday going? No, I mean, what, what, what holiday so far? <laughs> um, no, I just literally I got home yesterday from my most recent trip. So I haven't got to settle into that kind of mode. Uh, probably going to I mean, start doing a little wind down tomorrow and pick it back up after the holiday. I think it'll be good. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad to be back on the show. Glad to hear about your success in the meantime, your growth and, and the direction you've taken. So pretty geeked to have this conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. It, it's been good here. Uh, just like you guys, we, uh, just like you were silenced on Twitter, we were silenced on Twitter, YouTube, everything, despite all that, the show kept growing. Cause there's a real thirst for like authentic voices and the kind of people who we bring on the show, people like you, people like Dr. Malone, like people want to hear that stuff. And the, the powers that be as much as they want to silence it. And as much as they have control of like Twitter and Facebook and all these places, they can't control what people want to hear. And that's why you just told me you've been on like 200 some flights this year. Like people want to talk to you. They want to know what's up. Yeah. I have gone all over the place. It's, I don't know how many flight or how many different States I visited this specific year, but I counted. And since I started going on the speaking circuit, or if you want to call it that, and I guess really late 2019, I visited 42 states and two other wow. countries. So yeah, I'm getting around. I recently picked up two new states. I got North Dakota, which exists, and hmm. Iowa, which is prettier than one would expect, and which I cannot say about North Dakota. Uh, but <laughs> it was cold there, as one would expect. I went there in early November. But so I've picked up a couple more states. Um, looks like in the coming year, it's already kind of loosely booked. I'm going to pick up another one. The a sad, terrible, awful place of Hawaii. Um, oh man, I might get to go, 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 spread my messages there too. So, yeah, it's been an exciting, um, I guess, really twenty-four months in particular. Uh, yeah. Last twelve months, this this year was a little heavier than double last year, and I thought last year just could, was impossible. So uh, we're constantly proving to ourselves that impossible yeah. is not a word in our vocabulary. Yeah, well, I, I thought, I mean, I've been to all states except North and South Dakota, and I thought it was impossible that they exist, but I'll take your word for it. So, well, I mean, I want you to pause for one second and imagine what you think North Dakota might look like. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, we actually might hit it this summer. We're doing a, a family RV trip for about six weeks to escape the chaos, and we're thinking about knocking those two like like off the list. But anyway... Um, the last time we had you on the show, uh, it was a while ago. Society was already crazy. We were dealing with stuff on this show, like, you know, like drag queen story time, mandatory pronouns in school, stuff like that. Okay. Now months, of, uh, it's been over a year later. Now we've like escalated the situation to family-friendly drag shows, genital mutilation surgeries without parents' consents, 
uh, the normalization of pedophilia now. Uh, and we have like school administrators advocating for teaching children how to lube up their buttholes in Chicago. I don't know. I like, I'm a very open-minded guy. Um, I pride myself in that, but there's, there's even a limit for me to what I'm okay with, like considering and discussing and giving free will to other parents to like, what the fuck is happening at this point? I'm going to start off by doing something I rarely do. And I'm just going to say, I told you so I'm <laughs> trying to tell people, people are like, where is this going? And I remember back in 2019, 2020 people saying, where is this going? And I was like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. And um, all these things you're describing are, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you never quite get away from that human level of shock that this is really occurring, but they were all written about in the literature that I've been documenting for a long time. Uh, the stuff that we're seeing, for example, with the sexuality education stuff. If we go back to the founding paper of queer theory, which I wrote about in Cynical Theories, which means we I must have read it because we delivered our manuscript August 31, 2019, which you're like, how do you remember that date? And it's like, well, it's the last day of August. So it's not that hard. I have to remember a month and how many days are in that month. And I can remember the date. But so it was, it must have been well before that because chapter four in that book is about queer theory and it cites Gail Rubin in the paper Thinking Sex that I read it originally. But what themes are covered? It starts off, this is so 1984. They're already talking in this direction. And that doesn't mean anything except that we've seen nothing work as a bulwark against bringing this stuff into fruition in society. And so at some point you realize that's what's going on and that what's being talked about is coming down the pike. And so in this case, she talks about right out of the, the gate in that paper, um, that the child pornography, the, the criminalization of child pornography is a moral panic and shouldn't be happening. She goes on to talk yeah. about the normalization of fetish wear at the workplace. And we look at the White House, for example, for just one example, or even at schools, or these, these pride parades that went from being about something that looks like gay civil rights to celebrate your fetish on the street with kids. Right. And so you see her saying that there should be no distinction. If some, somebody, it's almost, you know, that theme we have now is bring your whole self to work. She's saying, you know, people who are into fetish can't bring their whole selves to work. She didn't word it that way in 1984, but that's the concept. And then she's talking about the idea of boy lovers and how they're so horribly stigmatized and shouldn't be. And then she's talking about what she calls cross-generational sexual relationships, but because she's mm. So we, I mean, I don't remember the exact wording. It's been a while since I've read the paper. Now I did a podcast series on that paper specifically um, exposing it, making it very clear, but it's very obvious that she's not talking about like a 50 year old with like a 20 year old girlfriend. Yeah. That's cross-generational, but it's not what she's talking about. It's very, very clear that she means adults and minors um, and that she's very carefully avoiding explicitly saying that she's condoning that, even though she's explicitly condoning that. And so when you start looking at what's in those early documents, they've been telling you the trajectory for 40 years, in that case, 50 years, if we go back to maybe even 60 to Foucault before her, upon whom she draws a lot of her ideas, you can see where these trajectories are. And so in a way, as horrible as things are, there's a few good things you can say about it. It's like, what's the silver lining on the hurricane, right? It's that, first of all, this stuff has been brewing and now it's in the open. You want things, you don't want a festering disease. You want to be able to see it so you can start to treat it. So it looks worse, but in some sense, it's better because it's no longer hidden. Uh, but also, um, just very personally, I'm like, wow, I'm being taken seriously instead of being told I'm crazy. 
except that I'm kind of always pushing into green space. And so pushing into green space means I'm kind of constantly getting called crazy. And, uh, but you get used to it, I guess. But anyway, this is, what do I make of this? Well, this is a, the, the things that I've been researching for the past, however many years, since I really got into the grievance studies affair and slightly before my analysis on them has been more correct than incorrect. Um, and I think we can say that pretty definitively now. So that gives us a grasp or a comprehension of what's happening uh, and the ability for people to come to terms with it. I'm not saying my analysis is right or totally right. What I think I am saying is that I'm putting out something that's right enough so that other smart people can pick up and fill in gaps, correct you know, yeah. errors. When you dive into green space, you make a lot of mistakes. Um, you overstate some things, you miss other things, and as but you also draw attention to that space. And then more and more and more thoughtful research, et cetera, breaks into it and starts to clarify and eventually nail down the story. And we're in that time now. Yeah, I don't I think most reasonable people who might have thought you were crazy two years ago now don't think that. Um, if they're even still aware of you, because the, the one way you know you're onto something is they've worked very hard to silence you um, and, and others doing the same thing as you. So mm -hmm. you, if, if they didn't see you as a threat, they'd let you yap away. They, they clearly want you to shut up about this stuff. And yeah, you have been talking about this stuff for a long time. And it, it brings me to the, the concept of um, slippery slope. Like you, you've heard conservatives for a long time talking about uh, we can't do this thing like we can't allow gay marriage because someday they will be allowing um, bestiality, which sounds ridiculous. That's mm -hmm. not the same thing. Um, and of course, we have to allow gay marriage like uh, people should be able to marry whoever they want. But there is a definitive line. And it does seem like that slippery slope is we're sliding down the motherfucker like it's yeah. it's wet and we're going down it. And I don't know where the end point is. Well, there is no end point, and that's what's really scary about it. Um, what I often like to say with that, because you brought up, you know, lube and all of this, is that the queer theorists, as you talk about a slippery slope, the queer theorists are lubing the slope yeah. and telling you there's no slope. And so that's really the issue. I mean, the, these they're, they're constantly pushing for an expansion of this, to take it to the next level, to take it further. Um, I guess there is some kind of like physical or biological limit to how far it can go. But if you can imagine it uh, in in to be in politer terms and in, in, in the realm of orgiastic celebration, um, the slope points in that direction, um, a truly Dionysian society. But of course, the, the true delicacies of that society, and it's sickening when you think about what those words mean, the true delicacies of those society are going to be reserved, especially for the elite, blah, 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 blah. Um, but degenerates are easier to control than not degenerates in terms of kind of macro things. And so keeping people, you know, degenerate in that sense and under management turns out to be uh, very effective for them. So you can kind of predict where, you know, what different things are going to go on. We're already seeing, we're not fully into the, the, to the space of normalizing pedophilia that they're trying. I call that the uncrossable line. I've actually said with all of this queer theory related stuff, and we're still early in this, debate because most people don't recognize that queer theory is real yet. They figured out CRT, critical race theory is real. They haven't figured out that queer theory is a real thing yet, even with decades of literature in it, but they will and they are. Mm -hmm. um, but when, when when you look at that literature, you can, you can see very clearly that these people are explicitly trying to destroy norms or explicitly trying to destroy the concept of normal. They're explicitly trying to destabilize identities. They consider queer to be an identity without an essence. And um, 
we're going to be able to clarify and fight that battle, I guess, as we're, as we're moving forward. But where it goes is into what's the next thing they say you can't do. That's the thing that we have to find an excuse to allow. Uh, yeah. I normalization of pedophilia is obviously one that's been a longstanding um, agenda item and it's, we're at a cusp of them attempting it uh, more and more kind of gratuitous sexual. I mean, the drag queen story time or hour went from, you know, these people dressed in relatively modest drag to often completely explicit yeah. drag and doing, They're doing you know, strip shows story now, reading down to strip shows. Yeah. So you can just pick, you know, eventually somebody's going to have to like flash some stuff and it's just going to, mm-hmm. the escalation is going to keep happening. Uh, and it's really important that we start recognizing this thing for what it is so that we can actually box it out legally and safely so that people don't eventually fly off the handle and try to take it back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the wrong way. Expressvpn.com slash the dad. Look, guys, the FBI and NSA, they're tracking you, man. If you're a parent and you use the word liberty or patriot in your bio on Twitter or whatever, or you talk about it on Facebook, guess what? They're spending money to track your web activity. Last year alone, 4 million Americans were tracked. That data recently came out. 4 million Americans were spied on by the FBI and they're not going after the lefties. So protect yourself and protect your family with a VPN blocker from expressvpn.com slash the dad. There's just no reason to not do this. At this point, you get three free months. If you don't like it by the fourth month, you cancel, cancel by month four, you never pay for it. So try it out. Expressvpn.com slash the dad, protect yourself, protect your family privacy, protect your family. Our second sponsor is zstacklife.com slash the dad. Guys, COVID's still here. Still here. People aren't dying from it, but you don't want to get it. I had it. It's no fun. Flu season's coming back around. Get your body right and ready and healthy. Exercise, eat right, and get all the vitamins you need for a strong immune system in one dose from Zstack Life, which was created by the great Dr. Zelenko, who is one of the first brave doctors to stand up and fight against the COVID regime. Go to zstacklife.com slash dad, get 15% off, get your body right. Let's get back into the show. It it seems like the way they have normalized this stuff is they get they get it into the schools. Uh, it started with universities and now it's it's coming into uh, elementary schools. Um so they and entertainment, to, actually, that's, that's and entertainment, a, entertainment and the, they set each other up. So it's really important to understand. But yeah, the schools, they understood if they capture the colleges of education and the universities and they're going to capture future teachers and professionals. That's what they, they can capture the kids. And mm-hmm. with entertainment, like think about what Dry Queen Story Hour, Dry Queen Story Hour was invented in, in 2015 by a woman, Michelle T or Tia, it's T-E-A with a diacritical mark on one of the vowels. I don't know how to say it and don't care, frankly, with the intention of bringing queer culture to her toddler. That was literally the goal. It's San Francisco. What are you going to do? And so it's expanded now to this point. But how did how in the world did this get like the concept of drag even be something that people would kind of look at without extreme suspicion? Well, RuPaul was on TV for 20 years before that. The entertainment yeah. industry started to pump this forward. And then by the time Drag Queen Story Hour lands, um, and I'm not saying that this was like a intentional sequential plot, but the 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 deal is that what we're seeing with a lot of the programming is that the the entertainment industry 
primes the pump and then the education apparatus comes in. And rather than saying that's not appropriate, that's something you should be talking to your parents about or whatever, they're saying, let's shield you from your parents. Come with us. We're going to take you down the road. They, they reaffirm it and they back it up. And in fact, they try to cut the parents out of the loop, which means the school is the place where in, in, in some sense it becomes real, but the entertainment industry is a place where they prime the circumstances. Yeah. Well, I mean, who do kids look up to? They look up to people they see on TV, entertainment. Mm-hmm. And they they look up to their their teachers. These are these are who are molding children. So it's a, it's a clever, effective strategy. And you know, look, I graduated college in 1997 with six figures of debt that took me until 2018 to pay off when I worked my whole life to build a business and sell that business. So student debt is slavery. It's you're 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 enslaving yourself to the machine by taking all all this debt that you can't escape. Then the elites in government, they use these universities to indoctrinate the kids. So you're, you're enslaving yourself to be indoctrinated. And then they use the, the, the false promises of debt forgiveness to remain in power. Yeah. So you come from the university world and, and you, you wisely got out of it. Um, if you were attempting to convince a parent, like let's say my wife, if you were attempting mm-hmm. to convince my wife not to send their kid to university, what would you say and what other options, what other pathway would you push them down? Um, the idodidactic pathway primarily and learning actual world skills is the other path. Like, have you considered learning to actually do trade work? Have you considered that you can go study. If you want to study a subject, you can study the fundamentals of that subject at home or even through the internet uh, without having to set foot on a university campus. But I would tell people though that, I mean, I often am asked, should I send my kids to college? And I hate to make decisions for other people. I don't know what your circumstances are. Um, The brainwashing power of the university is extremely strong. Some kids will be able to resist it. I just left a turning point USA America Fest conference with 11,000 attendees and met lots of people in college, lots of college students who are resisting it just fine by being extremely oppositional to it. But it's a powerful brainwashing environment. And if you are not 100% certain that your kids are going to be able to resist that, if they're not already kind of not just oriented kind of toward the conservative, but also socially networked in an effective way in that regard, if they're sort of lost, if they're sort of just you know, they're going to college because it's the thing they're supposed to do next, but they don't really have a clear reason why they are very susceptible to get pulled into a brainwashing or indoctrination. And you are at risk of losing your kids, um, both personally as parents and also as, uh, you know, in terms of them losing their own bearings and grounding in life. And so you have to take the decision very, very seriously. And it's just more practical or prosaic terms, though. I'm talking to people all over the country. And if you're not in the revolving door system of Harvard to McKinsey, Yale to Boston Consulting or whatever else, if you're not in that kind of elite, like foam of corrupt foam layer of society, the Harvard to Goldman, you know, wheel, if you're not there, I'm talking to because they're they're still all in the game. They are the game. I'm talking to hiring and managers for corporations all over the country all the time now. And it's increasingly, if they're not a major like fortune 100 company or something, it's always the same thing. College grads are almost at the bottom of the list. 
Right. College is a college degree is now seen that the employee is likely to be a liability. Absolutely. There's somebody who doesn't know what they think they know, and they're filled with all of this kind of like social resentment, and they're likely to blow up or cause problems. Right now, I read a statistic. I didn't. I can't cite it. I don't know if it's real. I just cr- cruised across it recently that three percent of the workforce is what we would call woke, and at three percent, that's enough to do a lot of damage. Obviously, that's all. Three percent only. Three. Three percent of the workforce is woke. That's the, that's that. the that I don't know. Yeah, either. There's a lot of woke, sensitive people or woke, um, like woke-ish people who aren't all the way there. But these people are increasingly seen outside of like it's not. It's unfair to call it the Beltway because that means DC. But if you expand your concept of the Beltway to mean this sort of elite sphere. Outside of that, people hiring managers are starting to see woke people as a liability and college mm-hmm. graduates is likely to be woke. Ivy Leagues are actually now at the bottom of the list for a lot of these places. The likelihood that the person is just going to be too big of a liability and too puffed up and undereducated is actually so Absolutely. high. That, so there, even in the prosaic world, there are reasons to start thinking that college might not be the best option, at least until colleges decide to get their, their head out of this this lubed up butthole that they've stuck it up mm-hmm. uh, and do something different with with their lives uh, or with their missions. But I'll tell you, just like you said that there's this debt slavery that you get caught in through the student loans, the colleges are caught on a debt slavery game too, that's keeping them doing what they're doing. That's the role of the ESG cartel, you know, environmental social governance scoring, these huge massive banks, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, the big finance banks, they run all the pension funds. They manage yeah. pension funds primarily in addition to some other passive investing and all this. So they're asset manager funds. They have particular agendas and goals. And guess what? Your average college, because since you graduated college, you graduated college by the year, by the way, the year I started college. So we're roughly the same age. And it was very different then. Well, right now, if you remember right about that time, what started going up on all the campuses? Oh, they're building a gym. Oh, they put in a bowling alley. Right. You know, a new, yep. a new we, $10 our, million dollar fitness center. Our gym oh, we did gotta, exactly that. Wow. We were time, there. All the dorms are outdated. Time for new, cool, high-tech dorms. Not mm-hmm. one bathroom per floor or whatever with six shower heads, but every room has its own. It's a suite. Every dorm is a suite now. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it's all this stuff transformed for what? Chasing student services. Why? Because student loan money was underwritten federally. So they knew the kids were going to be able to get it. That was Bill Clinton put that in. And so they had a basically a uh, unclosed tap of money so they could make school more and more expensive by increasing you know student services new buildings all this crap and they do this turns out your average university is hundreds of millions of dollars in debt right now well if they want that debt to have a reasonable interest rate that you talk, you imagine having a 200 million dollar mortgage this is looming over most universities. So they want that interest rate low. They want it to stay low. They have their pension funds tied up. They have all their all of their financial programming tied up through these asset managers. And guess what? If they do the system, they get good deals. If they don't do the system, they don't do it. They don't That's get that good ESG deals. And stuff. Yeah. They universities have become the company town. If you go back, you know that old song that shows 16 tons. And what do you get? Another day oh, older. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 16 tons, classic song, yeah. right? Talking. St. Peter, don't you call me? I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Turns out the universities owe their soul to the company investment bank and they're they're trapped. And so what do yep. they have to do? They have to do what the bank wants. And so all the universities are woke. They're going to continue to get woker, not just because of their being in an ideological bubble, but because the financial pressures and political pressures on their presidents and their provosts and their regents are so high that they don't have any other options. And so you want to send your kids to that? You better hope they are rock solid. I'm not saying like 
I would estimate that 10 to 20% of the kids that pass through can come through, you know, mostly ideologically unscathed that are reinforced in their, their true principles or whatever. Yeah, that's about the, the amount of the population who's not easily susceptible to being hypnotized. And this mass formation that we're seeing is about 10%. Most people are just followers. That's right. That's right. And you are risking losing your kids and making them hard to employ outside of the very kind of, like I said, elite corrupt foam. At yeah. the very top, if they're in that wheel, I don't know what to tell you, except that I hope you have a smarter set of principles than thinking, wow, this is a horrible game. But if we're going to have to play this horrible game, I want my kids to win it, which is an attitude some people have when they're kind of at that crust. But it would be far better to say that, wow, this game sucks and my mm-hmm. kids are going to have a bad future if this game progresses, regardless of if they're at the top of it or not. And we could have a better future if we break the game. Yeah. Um, but for yeah. the average, you know, I don't know what percentage of the kids go to um, elite Ivies, but for your average, probably 90, 95% of kids, you're not in that, you're not in that loop. You're not in the Goldman bubble. Yeah. And so, or, I mean, I'm just picking a corporation. It could be McKinsey. It could be Boston Consulting. It could be Deloitte. It could be Booz Allen Hamilton. It could be any of these kind of like elite consulting banking firms um, looped into the Ivies. If you're not in that circuit and you don't want to be in that circuit, it's, we're close to the tipping point where a college education is a greater liability than asset. Absolutely. And it, it's like you said, it's a game we're losing. Um, and unlike, you know, the, the advice a parent would give his kid when he's losing the games, try harder instead of trying harder to win the game. You should be like my brother, boom, boom. When we would be playing Nintendo and I'd be kicking his ass, he'd smash the game. It's time to smash yeah, well, the game. Move yeah, on. It's like you you can't tell a girl that wants to be a high school or college swimmer to swim harder to beat the guy on her team. Right. Yes. You can't tell her to practice harder to beat somebody who has that one out of a 10,000 girls might be able to beat, you know, a mediocre trans person that threw themselves into the, to the, the ring or the pool or whatever. Yes. The correct way to do this is to refuse to participate in the league that allows it. If you don't have a league for a few years while like it's figured out, I get it. That sucks. And there's things you lose. And, um, so I hate to say it this way, but so it goes in war every time. And we, it really has to be done that way. The game that is being offered can't continue to be played by the people that are supporting the game by their mere participation in it. No doubt. You can't, you can't play harder to win a game that's built for you to lose. Yeah. You can't win it. What, and what you said about, uh, hiring people in college education, I can attest to that firsthand as a business owner. Um, I started my business in, uh, I think, like 2011. From then until about 2015, 2016, these weren't high-end jobs, but I was still paying like $22, $23 an hour. And if I could get someone coming in with a bachelor's degree for this job in California, that's not an amazing salary, but it's good. I was hiring that person. After about 2016, after one nightmare scenario after another where an employee would sue for this, that, or the other thing because their feelings were hurt. Like that would literally be a thing. I was like, I'm done. I stopped hiring anybody with a college degree. I saw a college degree. I would not hire. I hired people fresh out of high school. I trained them myself and my company from 2016 to 2018 went from a company where we were barely scraping by to a company that I sold for seven figures by eliminating people with bachelor's degrees and just hiring kids. People are discovering this all over the world. This also offers a, or all over the country, this is also offering a pathway for parents. Like, what do I do? 
well, you know, there are these that we used to have apprenticeship. It's sort of apprenticeship in a sense, but there's a there's there are other pipelines where the college degree thing has become so corrupt uh, that these other pipelines to getting successful employees are being picked up by like people like yourself, and and it's it's going to chart a new direction. Whether the universities eventually do right the ship you know, and become a valuable asset in society again, or not is an open question. I hope they do. I'm not particularly optimistic about it, but figuring out like real life is going on and still has to be the problems of real life still have to be solved. And so people are still finding solutions. And I want to add a piece that we don't have to dwell on it, but just so that people don't think, oh, James said something stupid, like there's a lot of mortgage debt. So colleges are ideologically bound. It's worse than that. How do you keep your ESG score high? By the way, you hire a new DEI dean or ESG dean Mm -hmm. or sustainability dean every few days. So you have, imagine your position if you're running a university, because I do want people to understand I mean, blame the university as much as you want. I pretty well hate the things at this point, but I'm not going to take that away from anybody. But I want people to understand because if we're going to solve the problem, we have to understand the problem correctly. We can't go press on a university president or provost to change what's going on because they're under a pressure that you're not grasping, that they can't bend away from. And that pressure is, in addition to being millions of dollars, I mean, often hundreds of millions of dollars in mortgage debt, if they want to keep the score good that makes it so their debt is manageable, that their pension funds are covered, et cetera. They have to have a good ESG score. If they want to do that, what do they have to do? They have to have, they have to keep hiring these administrators. The administrative bloat at the university is expensive. It's mm-hmm. a way to make sure that even if they raise tuition, they are never going to be able to get in a financial position to be able to pay down that massive amount of debt that's holding them hostage. So they're actually caught in a double bind uh, to, they have an, an immense amount of stuff they have to pay for that they can't default on. And they're being to be able to even keep their head above water with that massive amount of debt. They're being required to hire people, administrators at salaries and at a rate that prevent them from being able to pay on that debt. That's why it's wow. the company town phenomenon. Yeah. So the universities little pity as I have left for them, uh, are legitimately in a trap. And I, I I like to bring that up for people to hear because you never know who you're going to get to hear it, but we're not going to solve the problem of the universities in our society until we understand it correctly. Uh, and we're not just going to be able to go to a state legislature and yell at them to yell at the universities or pressure the universities to defund this or defund that. In fact, what's going to have to happen is that the cartel controlling them is going to have to be broken up. So the legislatures need to be taking shots at that. And then you're going to find universities willing to do experiments more than likely and then, in other words, a market comes back instead of a cartel environment yeah. and uh, things can get better. What you're describing, the ESG that's coming down from the banks, and the reason that's coming down from the banks is because this is a tool they use to enrich themselves. Like All this comes from the banks, all of it in society. If you're wondering where all this comes from, it's the bankers. It's very profitable. I, I think it probably started sometime around like the last crash in 2008. Um, and and they use this tool very effectively and the banks. So we're all indebted to the banks and then the banks are in control of the Fed who's printing the money. So it's a vicious cycle. Like, what is there any other solution other than to destroy the Federal Reserve? Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate way to accomplish all this in one fell swoop. I mean, this is, I don't know that it'll accomplish everything, but it's, these are the kinds of solutions that we need to be having on the table um, because these entities are defrauding 
uh, and disenfranchising people out of their own their own wealth and their own their own countries. Uh, so something very bad has gone on there. And again, bringing clarity to that. So hopefully that we can discover sane and legal solutions to this, I think, is the absolutely uh, necessary mission of people that are involved in this conversation at this point. And that, that's definitely one of the things that can be on the table or should be on the table. Um, well, then what about, okay, so we advocate on this show quite a bit for for Bitcoin. I've been a big fan of Bitcoin. I've been in Bitcoin since 2014. Bitcoin is essentially decentralized money, takes that power away from the Federal Reserve. Now we have this FTX thing. And I've been of the opinion that FTX was a government creation. Like it started right after Biden uh, won. And it seemed like a convenient way to funnel taxpayer money to the Ukraine, to this guy who was funneling it back to politicians. And now that it's all been exposed, now they can use this as a way to say, hey, look, crypto is bad. Bitcoin is bad. We need to outlaw Bitcoin, as you're hearing Elizabeth Warren saying. So it seems like Bitcoin is another one of these threats to their power. So let's neutralize that threat. And now they're talking about their own digital currency. Um, Would that be the ultimate end of like freedom if they get this digital currency out there and cash is gone and Bitcoin is gone? Yeah. Um, I don't just to be upfront, I don't know enough about Bitcoin to talk intelligently about that specific aspect of this, but I do know enough to say that central bank digital currencies become the ultimate control tool. It's not to say that we could never have something like a digital currency, um, but it is to say that the amount of individual rights protection that would have to be in place before such a thing even got floated or a complete decentralization of said currency would have to be in place or else it's just a gigantic trap. The central bank digital currencies are a utter catastrophe in the making. Um, If you want to know what that looks like, look at China. People finally decided Mm -hmm. to have some protests. They started throwing a big protest. What did the Chinese government do? Well, they had their same thing as the Canadians, as they had a protest. They had their their finances. They had their ability to travel tied to an app on their phone that right. controlled literally. I mean, you don't only have a digital yuan in, in China, but they roughly have had a completely digital economy even since the last time I went there, in two, or mostly digital economy since the last time I went there in 2019. Your money can get modified, how much it's worth, how much it's 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 discounted or whatever can can change based on your social credit score. Whether you're allowed to use it or use it for certain things can change based on your social credit score. And now on your your COVID status, they can just turn it on and off. Um, we saw with Justin Trudeau that they literally can just freeze your mm-hmm. freeze your accounts. Now imagine that they that that's your only money is in a central account tied directly to the federal government and its finger on the button, um, and that the money literally doesn't in any other way exist, uh, and you don't have any other way to secure it or whatever. I mean, all of these things are possible. It becomes the ultimate tool of control. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they don't they don't want people driving too much for the environment or whatever. Well, you go to the gas pump and guess what? You can't buy gas now because you drove too much in the last week. Like they can do whatever they want at that point. Yeah, Literally I mean, whatever what, they want. That's what Kissinger said. I, I often try to get people to guess which famous communist said this. And I always think of some communist dictator. It was Henry Kissinger. He said, whoever controls the food controls the people. Whoever controls the en- energy controls the region. And whoever controls the money controls the world. And doesn't that sound familiar to what we're living through? Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course, 
if you had like a who's who in history of well-connected people pulling stunts, Henry Kissinger is somewhere high up on the list of very well-connected people who got things moving in the world. Yeah, there's a, there, I mean, there's a lot of people in history now at this point who I think the general population is going back and reconsidering their role in history. And that's one thing that I, as a libertarian, I will forever be grateful to Donald Trump for I'm not a right. Trump fan, but Donald Trump did what did in four years, what libertarians have been able to do for decades. And that's convinced 60 million people that our institutions are corrupt and not to be trusted and probably need to be torn down. So I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that because a lot more people believe that now, like you're hearing people want to abolish the FBI. We've been saying that for two decades, get rid of the FBI. They're corrupt. Well, now you hear a lot of people saying it. Yeah. Um, is there I mean, any I was way just that at the turning happens. point, right? So I was at Turning yeah. Point USA, famously conservative. Conservatives are not famous for wanting to get rid of these kinds of things, right? No, the opposite. And so here we are, eleven. Well, it was about eight thousand people actually in the audience when we were doing the Tim Timcast podcast on the stage live one evening. Uh, and so I'm sitting there next to Steve Bannon, and we got Charlie Kirk. And Steve Bannon is like, "We need to, you know, take the FBI down to zero. We need to abolish the Fed. We need to." Do, he's saying these things, right? And we have a crowd of mostly young, but not all young, conservatives going wild for these ideas. And so one of the guys, I don't know if you follow Tim Cast or Tim Pool or not, but one of his guys, sure. Luke, is a like straight up anarchist. And so he's like, finally, you know, people are listening to what I'm saying and oh, we're yeah. all laughing because there's all this agreement between a literal anarchist and conservatives, because like you said, Donald Trump and the events of the past. So that was 16. So six years, seven years have unfolded and revealed to us just how profoundly corrupt our key institutions are education, media, entertainment, and then the political entities. So through COVID, we were like, like the other day I went and bought like some supplement because the FDA was considering ruling it out. I was like, Oh, it must be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that right. was immediately like, you know, I've taken it before I had a reasonably good result. Don't really think about it much. And then I saw a news article. It was like FDA considering ruling this one out. And I'm like, purchase, yes. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. 10 bottles. Let's go. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, okay. So you mentioned you mentioned China. You, um, communism is communism infiltrating bad, yeah. our our <laughs> bad. It's infiltrating bad. our country. So my my question is, is all of this like it? It happens here from our banks down, but it's it's happened in China. Is there something going on between China and our bankers? Are our bankers controlling China? Like, which way is all this stuff flowing from? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, Larry Fink is like one of the only people, He does, most of his business is done in China. The World Economic Forum is tied up. What did Klaus Schwab just recently say on TV? Well, horrific, obvious, um, you know, civil liberties abuses are, are all over the place about China. You have Klaus Schwab literally on TV. I think this is the model to the world that we should be looking at is, is, is China, is, is Xi Jinping, the, the instruments yeah. of control, just amazing things are so fast. And it's like, Yes. That's pretty good, by the way. That was, that was they are up each other's butts like the Chicago school teacher. Um, <laughs> it's bad. Larry Fink, Larry, like all this ESG shit that the that the West is getting put under, China is exempt from all of it. And where does where does Larry Fink's money get held? China. Yeah. Like he knows what he's doing. There was even a scandal. Um so it's flowing both ways. There, you're not saying what one's in yes. charge. That it they're I think rating. They, they are they are frenemies, in my mm. opinion, in my guess. They are, they both, they're, they're working together while both thinking that they're using the other to defeat the other. 
That is, uh, if I had to place a guess as to what's going on, that's what's happening is that they are, they are, um, frenemies who both think that they're double going to double cross the other in the end and win. Interesting. So they're working together against a common enemy while trying to undercut one another at the same time. Okay. Uh, so they're yes, smart. I, smart and, and not at the same time. You yeah. Know, I don't know though, because these are, these are powerful entities, but uh, certainly there's a lot of Chinese or CCP influence. That's, that's undeniable. Certainly mm-hmm. um, these people don't need that much help from the CCP to do the things that they're doing. Uh, and certainly, you know, the whole world oddly has to turn a blind eye to the obvious problems and abuses in China. Everything has to get covered up. So, you know, that there's some, connection i mean one of the goals that i've heard is that we're supposed to turn the 21st century into the century of china or the century of asia so china is supposed to be the economic and and political superpower of the world and uh i guarantee you that the ccp does not think of a china without itself at the helm that china in its opinion wouldn't exist uh by what they mean by it so Mm -hmm. um and it seems like we're headed in that direction of China world control, but ultimately, like communism fails every single time. So and it must, yeah, and it and it and it will. It just might really take a long time and really suck for the next couple decades of our lives and our children's lives. That's yeah. You know, the Soviet Union lasted sixty nine years. At which yeah. point, the young people tell me you're supposed to say nice, mm. but it lasted sixty nine years until it fell. And that's a long time and does a yes. lot of damage. I mean, depending on how you count things, it's roughly like five generations at least of, of abject suffering, probably yeah. 30 plus million people being starved or, or murdered, countless people sent to horrific prison conditions, uh, total tyranny, total misery. Um, yeah, no, thank you. I'd rather nip that in the bud now. You we know? should, yeah, and that's that's the big word, though, is communism, right? That's the the key word. I mean, we can call it neo communism because the theory has updated itself from the old school, like Lenin stuff, but the practice hasn't. We're, what we're dealing with the United States is a, is a Maoist style insurgency. This is Mao's playbook updated to the context of the United States socio political arena. Uh, what's being implied through the World Economic Forum with its public-private partnership and especially its council of stakeholders for its stakeholder capitalism, that's Lenin's vanguard movement. That's what it is. I mean, I said council of stakeholders. Do you blink for a half a second when I say council of stakeholders? No, we know who that's who's going to make the decisions, right? How, how are we going to run our businesses? How are we going to decide if it's good environmental policy for our businesses, ESG, right? How are we going to choose what the right social policies are? Well, we're going to consult with the stakeholders. That's what they tell you because they want you to believe you're a stakeholder, just like right. the communists wanted you to believe that you were a person as in the people. Stake, stakeholder is a, a word now I'm hearing a lot in, in the right. corporate world, which of course. I, two years ago, I, didn't, I never heard that word. And now right. it's, it's everywhere. And even so they want you to believe company, it's about you. Yeah. It's not about you. Because Bill Gates is going to make stakeholder decisions on behalf of the stakeholders that he understands better than they do. And so what do you call a council of stakeholders? I don't remember how to say that. I don't know if everybody listening knows what stakeholder is versus a shareholder. Tell them what what you mean by stakeholder. Yeah, technically the definition of a stakeholder is anybody who holds a stake in the outcome of a business decision. So if if um my my granddad worked for Kodak, which was a you know camera, film, et cetera. And that involves making a lot of chemical processing and it polluted the environment. So if you live in the area near the factory, you're a stakeholder in some of the decisions that uh Kodak makes because you have a stake in what Kodak does. Right. Um if you're a shareholder, you're by definition a stakeholder because you have a financial stake in what they do. If um you know you're a user of their products, 
yeah. they make some horrific decision. You have a stake in what they do. So stakeholders so essentially is everybody is a stakeholder. Everybody is a stakeholder. Yes. Which is so now that's communism. That's that's the people, right? It's a prettier word. Yeah. That's how they use yeah, it's an update of the word the people from mm -hmm. communism. But obviously in communism, they didn't have the people. They had a council of experts who were the ones who determined what the people really wanted and needed. And that council of stakeholders is what's going to determine how businesses should run, what people actually need, whether you actually need to travel. And I bring this word council up so kind of gratuitously again and again, because the, the Russian word for council, do you know it? No. Soviet. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. It is the deciding, the word Soviet means the, the, the council that decides things. It's like a it's it's like a powered bureaucracy. Empowered bureaucracy is what it is. And so, what we're looking at with this stakeholder capitalism, public-private partnership model that the World Economic Forum, together with the United Nations, is trying to push onto the West and the world, is a recreation of yeah, a absolutely. Soviet government, where you're going to have experts. The fact that, that it's the, the same club. word makes leads you to believe they're not as smart as you think, because that's too painfully obvious once you hear it. You'd be surprised at how often this happens. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It turns oh. out that if you translate a lot of like, say, Hegel's philosophy, not to get too weird, but Hegel precedes Marx and his kind of uh, operating system, Marx's operating system, dialectical materialism is what it's called, is derived from the, the dialectic of spirit that Hegel laid out. So what's the relevance? If you translate a lot of the stuff Hegel wrote into Greek, you find out that it looks very ripped off from Plato. All he did was take platonic concepts out of the Greek and put them in German so people wouldn't recognize what they were. So and we're just kind of taking these, these same um, debates throughout human history and recycling them over and over, which is basically individualism versus community. And it just keeps going on over and over and over the same battle getting fought. Well, yes. And it's very important though, when we realize when we're talking about individualism versus community, that's already a lie that frames the thing in a way that we lose. It's actually individualism versus elites who believe that they have the right to speak in the, in the name of the community. Yes, They define the community on their terms and make everybody think it's about them. It's again, why is it called the People's Republic of North Korea? Right. Or People's Republic of Korea. Sorry. The Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea. That's North Korea. Right. It's not they don't say north. They don't they recognize yeah, themselves as the only Korea. There's no people's republic Why is it, about it. Yeah. That's right. Why is it always a the Democratic People's Republic of or whatever? Why is it always that way? Well, because it's going to be a democracy run like a republic, but the only people who are represented are the people. And who are the people? They're the people that the party recognizes. And who does the party recognize? The people who support the party. And mm -hmm. so they and this can go as deep as you want, but they literally think that people who understand have a fully human mind and the people who don't understand obviously don't. So they aren't technically persons. Yes. And so there well, you see that you see that here happening here with people who are MAGA, right? They're being made to be less than already yeah, like MAGA deplorables. Uh huh. You're not a yep. person. You're a deplorable. We right. are the experts. We have the mind. You're deplorables. You're barely better than animals. You're uneducated. You live on, you know, you're fucking your sister and yeah, yeah. it's, they, they do. They de they deperson you. Um, the, the getting back to the FBI and the CIA, like we we know now. Like this is something I, I I like to talk about, and people don't realize it, but now people get it. Where like back in the '60s or the '50s, they had Operation Mockingbird, which you can openly read about how they were infiltrating 
all the major news organizations and feeding you the news, feeding you what they wanted you to know. Um, then social media came about and it was a threat to them because we, the people, we could get our news directly from the news source. It didn't need to be filtered through this authority figure. Um, and then what they did is they infiltrated all of those. So it's, it's come out in Twitter. We all know that now Elon's taking over Twitter. Hopefully it's getting better, but it's probably worse in Facebook and YouTube and all these others. Yeah. Um, is there any hope of fixing the internet so we can get back to getting unfiltered information? I don't believe in abandoning hope. So, I mean, that's what's on the, the gates to the, to the, to hell. It's a sign on the gates of hell is abandon hope, right? Abandon all hope ye who enter here. So I don't, I'm not big on abandoning hope. Uh, we are at the, the, the stage where we are uncovering the degree of rot that's been happening. You mentioned the CIA. We've just found out this stuff about John Kennedy right? and, and what, and that's literally the creation story for the war term conspiracy theorist, which there's the FBI said that literally, the literally that's when they conspiracy came up theory. That is literally when they came up with it. And so what we're seeing, that was, you know, 1963, we're almost at 2023. We can do the math and figure out that was 60 years ago. So, or not, I mean, 59, I guess, technically, because it was like November or something, but um, we're looking at 60 years, at least of rot that the curtains getting pulled back on. And it becomes this very scary moment. But it's like if you went to the doctor, and this is a sad kind of metaphor, but it's important. If you went to the doctor and found out that you have cancer, is that good news or bad news? You think, well, it's got terrible news today because that's when you received the information. But it's actually, if you have it, if you step back from it and think for 10 seconds, it's actually very good news because you had something that was happening in your body that was very damaging, that could would eventually kill you, that you didn't know about. And now you know about it. And now you have options you didn't have before. It's sound, it is bad news to receive it, but, and as a matter of fact, it's like this weird blessing in disguise because now you can actually start to take proactive steps to do something about it. And so that's the phase that we're in right now. We're discovering that our nation has had a cancer for a very long time. And you're kind of asking me the question, you know, is it sort of terminal? I don't know. Mm. You know, I'm not a sophisticated enough social media oncologist to be able to to answer that question. But I do know that it's definitely a step in the right direction to have diagnosed it rather than have it not go diagnosed. Uh, and so that's actually sure. a big, For a big sure. positive, a big positive development that looks very negative. It's very scary. Um, but it also starts to demand investigations. And if those investigations proceed, things might happen. And if they don't proceed, that further delegitimizes the thing. It kicks the fraud up one rung of the ladder. And eventually you run out of runs, rungs of the ladder and something has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really feel like our best way you said, you don't know much about, it. I would encourage you to, to learn about Bitcoin. I feel like it's our easiest way out of all this without that. Like people think we can vote our way out of this mess. I don't see how that's possible. This, this government is too bloated and it's too easily corruptible. Anybody you put in there, unless there's some kind of Jesus figure can't overcome it all and fix this thing. So that, if, if there's no Bitcoin and there's no voting your way through this, it seems the only way out of this is like bloody revolution and nobody wants that. Yeah, no, we don't. Yeah, we definitely don't want that. So I think it's really kind of in all directions or all hands on deck. All these pieces that people are talking about, I think, are actually parts of a bigger solution. 
um, whether Bitcoin is relevant to that. Certainly uh, preventing the possibility of a centralized digital currency is key. Uh, maybe that's Bitcoin. Maybe that's, you know, strict regulation on currencies. Maybe that's that protects the people. I mean, rather than, you know, allowing it to continue to be so centralized and controllable, maybe that who knows what it is. But but then there's also the aspect of we're not going to people say this all the time. We're not going to be able to vote our way out of this. And I always think about that. I'm like, well, yeah, there are a lot of reasons why that's true. But it, it's more accurate to say we're not only going to be able to vote our way out of this. Other pieces are going to have to happen. So getting the right people in office still matters, even if it's not sufficient on its own. Getting the uh, you know the right perspective on our financial situation, even if it's not sufficient on its own, these are necessary pieces. Maybe none of which alone is 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 adequate. But no, I take your point for sure about checking out into you know. The, I mean, I think about these things, but mostly I read freaking theory from fifty years ago and drown <laughs> myself in it. So it's, I only have so much bandwidth. I got recommended four books already today. You must read these as soon as possible. I'm like, I'm not even done with the book I just started the other day. Uh, so yeah, I I I I wouldn't want to live in your headspace. I can, I can say that it's occasionally a little bit in the despair spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I can it's weird because it's always tempered with this this weird optimism. I was driving home one day, um, I don't know, three or four months ago. It was late at night. I think I'd gone to the grocery store to pick something up. Like shit, need to go to the store. It's nighttime and like in the summer, so it's like late. It's like ten thirty. I'm driving home, and all of a sudden, I was like, "This whole thing is too stupid to win." And I just right. felt supreme confidence that. It's going to be a rough ride, but we're going to get through this. And then I, I remember pulling literally into my driveway and thinking, is this what faith is? And that's it's always there. So my headspace is pretty despairing, but there's never like this loss of optimism and possibility in my, in my, my, my window. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one of the only politicians that I look up to ever is Ron Paul. And one thing about Ron Paul is he, you know, he's a Liberty guy. He's against the state, everything, but he was always very optimistic about our chances. And he won't even talk to you. Um, He won't come on your show unless you share his optimism, because Hmm. if you're not optimistic, you're definitely not going to fix it. Right. If you don't, if you don't see hope, if you're one of these people, you see no way out of it, then you fall into despair and, and now they've won. And look how well vindicated he's been after being considered a kook and everything else for so many years by so many people. Um, yeah, so this we're at an interesting inflection in, in our, our history and in our thinking. And I I think I see that the United States is a I do not have a negative view of the United States, but I see that its government has become a monstrosity and that we've got to cut the parasite off and get back to the republic that we were intended to be. Um not to say let's cut carte blanche back to like 1790 or whatever, but like I'll take you know, 1911. That would be good. Well, yeah, right before before <laughs> Jekyll Island. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are certain significant things that happen with Wilson and with 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 the creation of the Federal Reserve and and all of these. But uh, yeah, I, I like most of the amendments, <laughs> the, right. even the ones that weren't in the Bill of Rights. Not a lot of people get into that. Like, let's get rid of the 19th. Let's get rid of this. It's like, ugh, could we focus on stuff that really matters? Um, yeah. Like, the Federal Reserve and right. the, the the purview of the administrative state, the growth of the administrative apparatus. A lot of people don't know that the concept of equity, which is just socialism in a new box, literally the definitions are more or less word for word identical. Um, but the concept of equity grew up 
in the administrative state policy space. A lot of people don't know that public administration is where that it's called social equity theory. It developed there. One of its chief architects is a guy named George Fredrickson. Um, he was at this conference in 1968 when it was really starting to get talked about. It was called the Minnowbrook Conference. The Minnowbrook, I think it was Minnowbrook Two. I think that there had been one earlier than that, and it was the second one or something like this. But so he is at the Minnowbrook Conference talking about social equity theory and its need to be included in the field of public administration. And the host of the Minnowbrook Conference was a man named Dwight Waldo. And Dwight Waldo wrote a book in 1948 titled The Administrative State. Mm. This all grew up within the, co- the context of the administrative state. So that's 1948. We get out of World War II. Let's create a gigantic administrative apparatus, just like we're seeing. Let's create a gigantic administrative apparatus in the universities. And then what else do they create? You know, United Nations, let's loop it into a gigantic international administrative apparatus. So you kind of see the pattern. Yeah. You're, the way your mind works and the way you re- you retain information and can so easily recall it is, is really a gift. Uh, probably feels like a little bit of a curse at a time, but it's, it's a right. gift. It's a gift to us. Um, we really appreciate you. You know what you're talking about equity. One thing that gives me hope is, is all of these concepts, like uh, the fact that uh, no gender, genderless society, equity, yeah. communism, all it takes is about two questions deep on these things for someone to <laughs> ask them two questions and for them to really like logically break it down and the ideas fall apart. The thing that doesn't give me much faith is that very few people will ask these questions. They just kind of get along to go along. But I think that changes once life gets a little bit harder for them, unfortunately. And it seems like we could be headed in that direction in 2023. The economy is not looking too good. I'm thinking that we're going to see a couple of years of pain, but the trajectory that you're talking about, is already happening in terms of people becoming more curious. I had a flight earlier this year, like several months ago, still warm out and um, like quite warm. I was actually going to San Diego uh, and I'm sitting on a flight next to a I, mean, I, I got upgraded for whatever reason. I have just so much flights. There's so many flights. Well, I have status on airlines. flights a year. Yeah. Yes. So I, I get upgraded. I'm in first class sitting next to this lady. They're going to give you your own plane soon, probably. Yeah. Well, I actually got to start one of the planes at one point. So <laughs> <laughs> like, it's pretty crazy. It's like, I, I know the pilot and he was like, you want to start the plane? I'm like, uh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> um, so uh, I got to tell I'm, you, that doesn't give me much confidence about, about flying. I know. I'm like, like, this is in your insurance policy. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> But um, it turns out it's pushing two buttons in sequence okay. with a certain amount of time. And he told me when to do it. So it's not that hard. But uh, it's not like you're turning a key and like pulling a thing. It's, yeah. like, it's out there spinning the propeller or something. Yeah, you weren't but, out there top gunning it. No, no, okay. nothing. So it's like, push this button. Now, wait, now push this button. So um, I was like, that's it. And he's like, yeah, see on the computer stuff's happening. And I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, dude, that's a video game screen. I have no idea, but okay. <laughs> but uh, I'm flying out there and I felt it's funny that I felt like, let me just get this like first class stink off of me real quick. Like I got <laughs> upgraded. I didn't mean to be in first class. Um, so I was, I was there sitting next to this lady, old school liberal. I actually started talking to her and her husband was like three rows back professor so california liberal liberal in the ucsd you know education realm and i was i had offered the trade seat so they could sit next to each other and they declined so i'm talking to this lady she's a nice lady but california liberal and so she gets talking somehow she's like don't you think donald trump was a dictator blah 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 this whole thing i'm like no (laughs) and then she's still talking about all this stuff and she's like very you know california liberal on trump and then all of a sudden she was like well this is right after the mar-a-lago raid 
And so she's like, well, they did just raid his house and that was wrong. That was un-American. And I was like, mm, it's like, a, it's like when the cloud opens up and a sunbeam comes through and you're like, all is not lost. Right. Super California liberal. So these things keep happening. And every time I say that they cause red pill hurricanes or, or red pill rainstorms, things happen and people see a crack in the narrative or they see something that wasn't quite right. And as that increases, and especially as they, things get uncomfortable, the lies don't maintain all of this stuff has a has a, a timer ticking. Every one of their little operative operations or narratives that they put has a timer ticking over it before people are going to see through it. If we hold the line and we hold together until that time, what you see is a massive shifting of people's consciousness. Like, wait a minute, something's really wrong. And it seems like that's not going to do anything, but in fact, it will because the people and the more normal everyday lay people who are like, wait a minute, something's wrong. Proportionally speaking, the more lawyers, the more judges, the more, you know, you name it, these kind of officials who are going to have to make the decisions to start to correct the problems the more politicians who are like, wait a minute, we actually have to do something about this. No more playing the sausage game of the swamp. We've got to do something about this. Um, the more of those people you're going to end up having as time goes on. And so while 2023 and four are probably going to be tumultuous, in my opinion, I strongly suspect that we're going to start to see also a uh, awakening in to what's going on. It's already well underway. That's going to lead to crossing the critical mass threshold to where the average person in society is now suspicious, even if they're not really informed on what's going on rather than trusting. Right now we have yeah. too much, too many people that still trust the system. If we shift that and it's a smaller shift than you think, because they don't have to know everything that's going on. They have to know much of what's going on. It's a low engagement position. If they shift from trust to suspicion, yes. that is that skeptic is not a bad word. We need that's right. That basically foils our plans. Yes. Yes. And well, we're in the hotbed of uh, following here out here in the middle of Southern California. So when I start seeing it here, I'll let you know, and then I'll start to share your optimism about that. Um, yeah. Being be, in East Tennessee helps by the way. Yeah. That well, yeah. that's the thing is the people who are skeptical, they're moving from here to there, right? They're moving from here to there. They're moving from here to Florida. We bought a house in Florida because we can't afford one here. Once our kids are out of school, we're going to, we're going to move there because it's either if, if we can't fix the whole country, we can fix parts of it and then right. we can be good. James, thank you, you so do. much. Thank you so much for coming on. You, you are a shining beacon of hope and, and light and knowledge for all of us. Uh, parents are terrified of what's going on and you give us hope. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Let people know where they can uh, hear more from you, get your books, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my website is newdiscourses.com. That's the brand is new discourses. The podcast is called the new discourses podcast. Find it at YouTube at new discourses. My company is at new discourses on all the social medias. I'm at conceptual James. Uh, on most of the social medias, but not Facebook back on anymore. Twitter, back, back on, Twitter. on Twitter, permanently kicked off of Facebook. What are you going to do? Um, the new book is the Marxification of education. It's probably backwards, which you can kind of see what it yep, looks yep. like. Yeah. The Marxification of education. You can get that uh, either on, on the Amazon, or you can use our quick redirect link to um, uh, Marxification.com. We'll get you there. And it tell it will tell you how it's called Paulo Freire's critical Marxism and the theft of education. It will tell you how, education has been stolen. It will tell you how the trick they're playing in education, its history and how it works. And when you can see how the magic trick works, 
it's not a magic trick anymore. It's something you can call out. So that's why I wrote the book. It just came out on the sixth. It's doing pretty well. So I'm excited that it's out and people are, are getting a lot out of it already. Fantastic guys. It's not too late to get that book delivered by Christmas. Get it today. Uh, I can't wait to read it. I ordered it last night. I'm looking forward to it. James, thank you again. We're talking, we're talking again soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Take care.